We are in Acts chapters 25 and 26 this morning. We're going to cover all of them together. It's going to be a really fun adventure. We're going to have to move pretty quickly through them. And you'll notice in the middle part, I'll spend a lot more time. But we should move swiftly. And so uh, I want to give you a little bit of context quickly about how we got here and, and where we are going. In Acts, we've said, to summarize the whole book, as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. The church's witness to Jesus Christ crucified for sins and raised for the justification of all who repent of their sin and put their trust in Him has spread. It's been spreading. It first filled up Jerusalem and then has since spilled out into the countryside, into Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And what we're finding as Luke has focused in on the life and ministry of Paul here is that the gospel is not just spreading, spreading geographically, it's spreading socially. It goes not just to Jew, but to Gentile. It goes not just to the poor, but to the rich. Not just to blind Bartimaeus who sits on the roadside and cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, but also to the tax collector Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree, and Jesus finds and says, come, I am going to eat at your house today. The gospel, you see, is for everybody. Everybody needs the gospel. And what we'll see in these two chapters is that Jesus' words to Paul back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, are being fulfilled. They're not really to him. He's telling it to Ananias. Ananias is, is worried about Paul because of his past. He's like, Jesus... This Paul guy that you have in my house, that you want me to unblind, um, you do know that it's kind of been killing Christians, hunting them down, persecuting them. And, and God says to Ananias, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And indeed, we've seen Paul suffer for the name as he has proclaimed Jesus faithfully over and over again. It seems he is suffering and rejected, and yet in the midst of that adversity, the word of God prevails. It spreads. We've seen him take the word to the Gentiles. We've seen him preach the word to Jews. And now, today, we're going to see him preach the word to a king. King Agrippa. Two parts to our two chapters. We're going to talk about Paul's appeal to Caesar and then Paul's last defense, and it comes before King Agrippa. And then he's going to sail on to Rome, and we're, we're basically at the end of the book here. Our main idea this morning is this, what I think the heartbeat of our passage. You can find it in verse 18 of 26, part of it. So that Jesus is the light to whom men must turn to have their eyes opened so that they might be saved from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and to share among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. And so the exhortation is, is similar to that. Be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. 
so that blinded eyes might be opened, so that those who do not know God might turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and be joined to the family of God. Let's pray, and we'll get into the text together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the life of Paul, from which we learn so much about your work in the early church. We confess that you were doing a million more things than we know about, that indeed your invisible hand guides all events, that there are no maverick molecules in the universe, and this gives us confidence, confidence in you and in all the promises you've made in Christ. You keep your word. It never fails. For this we praise you, and we submit ourselves to that word right now so that we might be changed and become more like Jesus. It is in his name that we pray together this morning. Amen. Chapter 25 and verse 1 Festus has just replaced Felix as the governor. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him. And they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul, that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. When he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. Then Paul made his defense. Neither against Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me on these charges? And Paul replied, I am standing in Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, even as you yourself very well know. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with his counsel, He replied, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. Paul's life has been turned upside down for over two years. He has been unjustly imprisoned. Most of his days spent, most likely, chained to a Roman official who would have been overseeing him. He spent two years dependent on, upon the church in Caesarea to meet his needs of food and clothing and books we know. During this time, he's writing books of the Bible. 
And I think often we go, yes, God used Paul's imprisonment so that we would have large portions of our New Testament. God used Paul's imprisonment, he tells us in Philippians, to make his name known among a people that otherwise his name wouldn't have got to, all through Paul's imprisonment. And so it was actually a good thing. It was. God, God used Paul's imprisonment. But, but I fear we, we, we just read over this verse. So his, his, the two years in Paul's life, they pass really, really quickly for us. Right? It's just like a verse in verse 27, right? After two years had passed, Festus succeeds Felix, and then Felix wants to do the Jews a favor, so he leaves Paul in prison, and then here we are, Festus, Paul's on trial again. But I mean, it was two years. What were you doing two years ago? How different was your life to you? Where were you living? For me, how many kids did you have? you imagine being in chains under a kind of house arrest, imprisonment for two years? Paul's world is upside down. And still the Jews have not forgotten about him for two years. New governor, and they come to him and like, hey, why don't you send Paul down to Jerusalem? Because our conspiracy to kill him while he was on his way to testify before us last time, it didn't work. So we would like to try that bit again. Because we still want him dead. I mean, this is intense hatred. He's imprisoned and he is hated. And so then we have Festus, who's kind of new to the scene and seems to be trying to do a good job. He's just trying to ascertain the facts and adjudicate the the case in a way that is, is righteous and good. And initially he rebuffs the Jews. No, we're going to try him in Caesarea. But then he has this change of heart. You see, as he's talking with Paul in verse 9, he wants to do the Jews a favor, just like Felix did. Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges? And Paul, whose world is upside down, he's experienced injustice after injustice, he, he says, no, 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 I won't get justice in Jerusalem. I'm willing, I'm willing to do the time if I did the crime. Right? That's what he says. But I haven't, haven't done anything. I'm innocent. And I know that I won't get justice in Jerusalem. And so I am going to appeal to Caesar, as is my right as a Roman citizen. And indeed, he will go to Caesar and be tried. The Caesar at the time is the notorious Emperor Nero, who famously used to light his garden parties with the severed heads of Christians. But at this point in history, it's not like Paul is absolutely crazy, like, yeah, send me to Nero. That would be great. Nero has not yet manifested uh, the, his abhorrent and grotesque behavior. It's not, people don't know that yet. He's kind of normal, actually, in his early years. Things are pretty peaceful. And so Paul is, is hoping that he will get justice. He also knows that he's supposed to go to Rome. This is what Jesus told him back in verse 11 of chapter 23. Just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, so too it is necessary that you testify about me in Rome. Be encouraged. Have courage, Paul. Well, two years ago now. And yet Paul still has that courage. He's still trusting in Christ. His, his world is upside down. And maybe you have been there before. Maybe you've had those moments where it made all the sense in the world to you to abandon your faith because it felt as if God had abandoned you. 
Maybe you have laid your head down on your pillow at night and had tears stream down your cheeks and you thought, God, why have you left me here? Had every reason to quit. Paul has every reason. But he doesn't. He doesn't give up. He continues to trust. He continues to press in because Jesus is enough. When everything else fails in Paul's life, there's nothing to show for us like but some chains. Jesus is still enough in that place. Jesus is still all satisfying to Paul. Jesus is his joy, his hope, his stay. He understands the weight of his sins. He understands that Jesus was crushed beneath the wrath of God that was due to him. So that by faith in Christ, he might live. You see, Paul understands who Jesus is. He understands he belongs to Jesus, and he knows the end. He knows that Jesus is returning to wipe every tear from the eye. Jesus is returning to end evil. And so, we know the beginning of Paul's story, and Paul, he, he knows the end of the story. But this space in the middle where he's living, it's still really, really hard. Likewise, for us, we, we, we all know our, our beginnings and, and where we started. We all know the end where Christ is going to return. And right now, we live in this space in the middle, and sometimes it's just really, really hard. So how do I continue? Well, well take courage. It is necessary for you to do each and everything that God has purposed for you to do in this time in the middle. And you can trust him even when it feels as if things are upside down because Jesus will come and make them right side up. Jesus is enough for where your life is right now. Seasons may change your living situation, may change your health, may change your body, will change Jesus will not. He's still enough. He's still enough. Let us not forget his faithfulness to us in the past. Let us not forget his promises to us in the future. Let us continue to trust him and to drink deeply of his love for us. And this is what, what Paul had to have done to endure faithfully. He's enduring going before unjust judges and unjust circumstances. And it only gets worse as King Agrippa arrives on the scene in verse 13. You'll see that several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. This is pretty interesting historically. Uh, king Agrippa, how, how it worked would be like there are governors in Roman provinces and then the king would be over top of them. And That's what King Agrippa, he's in charge of the governors. He also can appoint the high priest in the temple at Jerusalem. He's respected as an expert on Jewish law and, and Jewish stuff. His, he's the, gotta get this right now, he's the son of the Herod Agrippa. He's Herod Agrippa II. He's the son of Herod Agrippa I, who we met in Acts chapter 12. Remember him? He killed James, and everybody said, that's great. And he's given that big speech, and they say, like, he's like got a sequence outfit on or something because there's just beams of light bouncing off of him. And he was receiving it as glory unto himself, and we read that wonderful verse that God killed him. 
and worms ate his body. And so at the end of the chapter, we see that the messenger of the gospel might die, but the gospel message goes on. Herods have tried to kill this message. They've tried to snuff out the promise of God time and again, and it's, it's continued to fail. His great-grandfather was the one who commanded the genocide at Jesus' birth. Remember that? It says all the babies that are born in that region where we, we think Jesus is, we want to kill them all. Was unable to end the Savior before the appointed time. That's, that's who this guy is. And if you were paying attention last week, you're going to connect the dots a little bit and notice that Drusilla, who was married to the previous governor, Felix, is also his sister. And this, it's mentioned here, Bernice comes with him. She is also his sister, who was once married to his uncle and is now his constant companion and is widely rumored to be, you guessed it, his mistress. Sexual perversion is nothing new. But I paint that picture for you so that we understand these people who are sitting in judgment over Paul are all unjust. He just seems to be walking into more and more injustice. And yet he has courage because he knows that Christ is the judge and that one day justice will fall down like waters. All things will be made well. Anyhow, Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea and we read in verse 14, since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has opportunity for a defense against the charges. So when they assembled here, I did not delay. The next day, I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man be brought in. The accuser stood up and brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements with him about their own religion and a certain Jesus, a dead man that Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss in the dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and to be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. And so they, they are hanging out. You can imagine it. You know, they're, they're having dinner and some drinks and, and some really good food. They're talking to one another. And he says, hey, I've got this really interesting case. You might be interested in it since uh, you're an expert in such Jewish matters. I'm actually, I've got to send the guy to Caesar, and I don't even know what charges I'm going to write down that he is being accused of because this seems like a religious dispute, but, but maybe you can help me with this. And Agrippa says, that sounds great. We'll hear him tomorrow. And so that takes us into verse 23. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. For whatever reason, I was a kid. When I think of great pomp, I think of the movie Aladdin. When, uh, when Aladdin is Prince Ali and he's rolling into Agrabah and he's got like tons of camels and horses and it's just this big show. And so they're making a show of it here is the point. With great pomp. And they entered the auditorium. 
with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men present with us, present with us. You see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death. But when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write on my, to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially since you are very knowledgeable about all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. And so that's an important verse, listen to me patiently, because he's going to preach for much longer than we have here. We just have a snapshot of his sermon, right? It wouldn't be, listen to me patiently, I'm going to talk for about two minutes, right? So so we just have a sampling of everything that was included in that sermon or defense that Paul gave. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial because of the hope in what God promised to our ancestors. The promise our 12 tribes hope to reach as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why do any of you consider it an incredible thing that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself was convinced that it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I was in agreement against them. In all the synagogues, I often punished them and tried to make them blaspheme since I was terribly enraged at them. I pursued them even to foreign cities. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priests. King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice speaking to me in Hebrew, Aramaic. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, 
I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those in Damascus first, and to those in Jerusalem, and in all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, and do works worthy of repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and were trying to kill me. To this very day I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great saying, nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. There's a lot in these verses. Paul goes and makes his defense, and we're going to focus in on his his mission and then on his past. And what is really interesting about Paul's mission, what the Lord tells him his purpose is, you see in, in verse 16, is how similar it is to what we read earlier about the servant of the Lord and about Jesus in Isaiah 42. You can keep your finger there and look precisely at verse 18 while I read to you verses 6 and 7 from Isaiah chapter 42. I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. Jesus is obviously the the suffering servant of the Lord. He's the new covenant of his people. He's the light for the nations. But what has Jesus also said about his church? You are the light of the world. What, what, this connection between Isaiah 42 and Paul's purpose and his commission here is really interesting. Like Jesus, Paul is called by God. Like Jesus, who is that suffering service, Paul is promised strength. And like, like Jesus, Paul is tasked with opening blinded eyes. But if we are astute, we will look through the book of Acts try and try to find Paul opening the eyes of any blind people. And I'm sure there are these, these occasions when people are coming and being healed by like his handkerchiefs and whatnot, that they're having their eyes open. You see, the, the way that Paul is opening eyes is metaphorical. This isn't about physically, literally opening people's eyes. It's about helping them to see the truth about God, the truth about Jesus that they might believe. And so the point of, of the connection is that Jesus' ministry of setting the captives free, rescuing men and women from darkness and the power of Satan, Jesus' ministry continues in Paul and it continues in his church, in you and I. The way that blinded eyes are opened is through the ears. Faith comes from hearing. Paul opens blinded eyes by preaching the gospel. 
brother or sister, the way that you can open blinded eyes is by preaching the gospel of Christ to others, to those who do not yet know. Our commission is, is the same as Paul's. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, this is why we exist. To worship God and to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To witness to His Lordship. To make disciples of all nations. Let us not become so inward looking that we forget the strong priority of evangelism in our lives. Brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you over the next six months to get one person that you will pray for every day, that you will build relationship with over time, that you will share the gospel with. Just, just one person that you have in mind, that you want to minister to, that you, you want God to open their eyes. Commit to praying and to sharing with them. And perhaps God might give them sight. Let us be a people who don't drift away from the mission that God has given to His church in regards to evangelism. This is what Paul gave himself to. Opening blinded eyes. We'll notice that he, he has a new audience for his message, and yet his message remains the same. It's a new audience, it's the same announcement. And there's some elements we can pick up in, in this um, text that we see in most all of his proclamations of the gospel. Look at um, verse, verse 22 and 23. We've seen this. This is more part of his defense. Where he basically says, I'm not saying anything other than what Moses and the prophets said. Right? He's saying Christianity is the proper fulfillment of, it's the proper end of Judaism. Judaism is the root that produces the fruit of Christianity. If you are a good Pharisaical Jew like I was, you'll believe in the hope of the resurrection, and the hope of the resurrection has happened already in Christ Jesus. He's the first fruits. There's another resurrection coming, and that's on the final judgment day. This is what we believe in. And so I've just simply believed Moses and the prophets, and I'm telling you that their promises have been kept in Christ Jesus. And in verse 23, this is the Messiah must suffer the first to rise from the dead and proclaim light to our people. This is all imagery from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 60. It's all about Jesus. He's saying who, what we didn't quite understand about the Messiah is his identity. I'm telling you, the Messiah has come. It's really funny how it functions as part of his defense is that I haven't stirred up anything against the Jews. I'm not anti-Jew. I'm not anti-law. I'm not anti-temple. I'm pro those things because they all point us to the Jewish Messiah. That's his defense. I'm not guilty of any of this. And at the same time, it's, it's gospel proclamation. What I love about Paul's defense speeches is that they're always, they always just seem to be aimed more at declaring the gospel than defending himself. I mean, they, they do both. They function as both. But man, they're good sermons. Especially here we, we see in, in, verses, in verse 18 again. It's just very plain, even in Paul's recounting of Jesus' words to him, 
My purpose is to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and the power of Satan to God. I mean, immediately, this tells anybody who is listening that their position before God is a little bit different than they thought it was. I think that's true in our day, too. If you talk to somebody on the street about, about who God is and what they, what they think their status is before him, if they believe in God, typically, uh, they'll say, well, God likes me. I'm his friend. We're all children of God. That's not what the Bible says. Ephesians 2 says that we're children of wrath apart from God. And yes, in the sense that God's our creator and that we're all made in his image, worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. Yes, we are all God's children. But in the salvific sense, the relational sense, when we are apart from Christ, we are not children of God. We're under his wrath. We're children of wrath. This is Our position before God apart from Christ is just what is said here in verse 18. In darkness. In darkness. Under the power of Satan. I don't know how many of us describe ourselves as under the power of Satan. What does that mean? Like you're at home and you just, like you're just hanging out in the kitchen, making some dinner, and all of a sudden, I, I got to get the Ouija board, and I'm going to get your hands out, and I just can't help myself. I've got to Ouija it up, or like, you know, I've got to carve a pentagram into my leg, or like Satan's going to haunt my house. Is that what it means to be under his power? No. What is Satan's goal? To make us forget about God and focus on ourselves. So you can see how the world is under his power. They are blinded to who God is because their eyes are so focused on themselves. How many of us, even on this side of salvation, how many of us who know Christ so foolishly put our eyes on ourselves and return to the darkness like a dog to its vomit? Position before God apart from Christ is, is darkness under the power of Satan. And he makes their position clear, makes their need of reconciliation with God clear. The good things to have in a gospel presentation. You need a Savior. That's, that's the point of that, that they would turn from the darkness to the light. And he tells them how they can do that. You turn from the darkness to the light. That's putting your faith in Christ. And when your faith is in Christ, when your eyes are open, when you come to the light, you receive, and notice here what you receive is twofold. So I think we focus on one often and not the other. You receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You get forgiven of your sins and a place in the family of God. Those who are set apart as God's children, you have a share with them. Your inheritance is in Christ. You belong to a new family. You receive forgiveness from God, and you are reconciled to Him, and 
to all those who are in Christ Jesus. This is glorious. And these are truths that Paul doesn't just like know about. He's just telling them disconnected. They are truths that he knows. He's experienced them. We know this because of his past, which is recounted for us three times in Acts. He tells of his conversion story. Luke gives us Paul's conversion story three times, and I can't help but think it's probably, well, there's many reasons for this, but one of the reasons, or one of the takeaways we can get from it is it's probably a good idea to know your own personal testimony and to be able to share it. To be able to tell people, yes, the, the facts about the gospel, the reality of the resurrection, it, it's a historical event, and the preponderance of evidence points us to the truth that Jesus got up from the dead. It's also important to be able to take that and say, and this is how he's changed my life. He lives physically, bodily, he's in heaven, and he also is with me. Paul's testimony about the facts isn't enough to convert people. His transformed life is enough to make them think twice. I mean, his life before Christ was nothing short of demonic. He hunted down and persecuted Christians. He was Paul of Isis. He's persecuting Christians under the pretense of being religious. Gathered coats so men could stone Stephen. Oh, you know, you're not going to be able to throw the rock quite as hard as you, you need. Get not, you need to get that full rotation on it. Let me, let me hold your coats over here. Make sure we get him good and dead. Paul hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated the church. And I can't not point this out. He's persecuting Christians, and I just love that, that question. Saul, Saul, you see it in verse 14. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting this, the church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his church that to persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus. To hate the church is to hate God. Listen, sisters, let us pray for those who speak ill of Christ's church, who hate his church and persecute his church. For they do not know what they do. Maybe more positively, we want to encourage ourselves to love the church. Because in loving the church, we love Jesus. Our love for one another is an expression of our love for God. 1 John 5 1 tells us everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you, are you nice to them? Maybe more crudely, if you're a jerk to other Christians, that is the same thing as being a jerk to Jesus. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Paul 
hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He hated God. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We know the story well. He's blinded by the light. Everybody sees the light. Everybody falls down. We have that question from Jesus. But this, this new angle that Luke gives us in this particular retelling is this phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. We're not typically familiar with goads, but what is like a stick? So if you were driving oxen, I guess, or you, I don't know what people used oxen for, but you wanted to go a particular direction and it might rub up against the goads and try to go its own way and so you just prod them harder until they do what you want. And the idea is that, that Paul has this inner turmoil in his conscience going on where he, can, he recognizes that he is being pulled towards God. He's being drawn towards belief in Christ and he's resisting it and holding on to his old Judaism. And Jesus just, you know, presses that goad harder into him right here on the road to Damascus. He says, no, you will follow me. Paul turns from being a persecutor of Christians to one who proclaims Christ. It's a glorious, beautiful testimony. I pray none of you have it. I pray none of your kids have it. I pray all of the testimonies of your family members and of your children is that I can never remember a day where I didn't know and love the Lord. But Paul's testimony is quite dramatic. And even you would think embarrassing, shameful. Like, why doesn't he hide this? He seems to be pretty open about his past. I think how often, um, typically in churches, we... We're either prideful about, I come across people who are prideful about their old way of life, or they're so shameful of it that nobody knows about it. They want to hide it. And one thing interesting about Paul is he doesn't seem to hesitate to share his story. It's because he's humbly received the grace of God. The point here is this. You don't need to hidefully shame, shamefully hide your sin from everyone. We know that you're a sinner and that you need the blood of Christ. It's why you're here. You don't need to carry around the guilt and shame that Jesus died for. You've been freed of that. Learn to, to preach back to your own heart. Preach back to the devil. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's dealt with my sin. I don't have to carry it anymore. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. It's the glory of being a Christian. We are forgiven Though our sins are many, His mercy is more. It's stronger than the darkness. It's new every morning. His grace is enough 
for you. And non-Christian, if you are here, his grace is enough for you to turn from the darkness. Trust in Christ. Be free. Don't be like Felix and Festus and Agrippa. Verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. If you've been to college, you love that one. Verse 25, but Paul replied, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and of good judgment, for the king knows about these matters. I love how Paul flips this here. It's now like, Agrippa is on trial. The king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him, for I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice since this was not done in a corner. It's one of the unique things about Christianity. Doesn't rely, like many world religions, on private revelation where like an angel shows up, tells somebody, and then they go and tell a bunch of other people. No, it relies on public events. Saying, this happened and you know it. You can see it. You can talk to people about it. The man Jesus lived, he was dead, and now nobody can find his body. This whole thing would be easily disprovable. Produce the body. Nobody's been able to do it. Me and others are are dying for the truth about him. That he's raised. 500 people have seen him in Corinth. He's appeared over and over again. He's alive. The prophets foretold it, and you know it, King Agrippa. It wasn't done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? King Agrippa, being a good Jew, should answer yes. I know you believe. And Agrippa's in a tight spot now. If I say I believe the prophets, then it seems like I need to say I believe in this Jesus, but I don't want to do that. Um, uh, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily, Paul? Sidesteps question. <laughs> this Paul thinks he's going to trick me into becoming a Christian. <laughs> you know, and everybody kind of laughs it up, yucks it up. And Paul responds, I wish before God that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me might today become as I am, except for the chains. The king, the governor, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this man's not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Once more, we see Paul's innocence. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. Paul shares the gospel brilliantly. His innocence is confirmed by his judges and his savior is rejected. He's even accused of taking crazy pills because of his study in verse 25. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.18. The cross, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Friends, be encouraged by Paul's failures in evangelism. He had a lot of success, but he also, we see a lot of times where he's just rejected and people don't believe. That should encourage you in your sharing of your faith. You might fail, but so did Paul. And you should still act as Paul does, wishing before God that those who don't know Christ would become as you are. Have you ever told somebody that doesn't know Jesus, I want you to become a Christian? I want you to become a Christian. This is the way of life. The the way you're living in sin is not what's best for you. It's not what God has designed for you. 
I want you to become a Christian. Friends, let us long for and wish for the salvation of others. Let us commit ourselves to preaching the gospel so that God might open their eyes, so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Amen.